Let's open again to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount as we continue our series through the Beatitudes. Today our focus will be Matthew 5 verse 6 and let us remember when we come to the Beatitudes that the Beatitudes are divine blessings. They are blessings that God bestows upon the citizens of the kingdom of God. They are attitudes, they are virtues that represent the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. These are produced by the Holy Spirit in the citizens of God's kingdom. And in this respect, since they are attributes, since they are virtues, attitudes of the kingdom of God, they run in conflict with the kingdom of this world. They're paradoxical. They're counterintuitive to sinful nature. They're counterintuitive to the sinful values and ideals of this world because they declare to us that the blessed life and and the happy life, the flourishing life, it's not marked by outward success and, and worldly comfort and prosperity. The way of blessedness is the way of spiritual poverty. And and mourning and meekness, and as we'll see today, by a living and breathing hunger and thirst. That's the way of blessedness. That's the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God. So let's approach this with these things in mind. And again, our focus is Matthew 5, 6, but we'll begin reading up in verse 1. Let us listen to God's Word. Let us listen to the sermon preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us listen Listen with faith. Matthew 5.1 Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray again. Bow with me. Our Father, we do ask that by Your blessing and favor, the Holy Spirit might fall on us today to give us ears to hear, to give us, Lord, hearts eager and hungry for You, to receive You, We ask, Lord, that You would help us to treasure Your Word, to apply Your Word, to remember Your Word as it's taught to us today. We pray that You would give us the comfort and blessing of Your Word. We pray that You would reveal to us the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We wish to see Jesus. We ask that You would reveal Him to us through this passage. And we ask in His name. The son of your, the name of your son Jesus, Amen. We need to acknowledge today, as we come to this verse, this passage. And blessed are the those who hunger and thirst. Probably doesn't hit quite the same way as it did when Jesus first spoke these words. You know, as children, we might have thought that we were dying of hunger on that long road trip. Or we might have argued that we were dying of thirst when we got up out of bed past our bedtime. 
But more than likely, none of us have actually experienced life-threatening, crippling hunger or thirst. It's just not something in our day and age that is very common. To us, um, hunger is when the sermon goes a little too long. I'm sorry. You get out of church a little late. Maybe you missed breakfast and now you look up and it's 12.45 and you kind of limp to the car. To us, thirst is like when you do yard work and it's in the heat of the day and a headache comes upon you because you didn't properly hydrate. But hunger and thirst in the ancient world were far different. Food was scarce. You know, and, and, and proper drinking water was at a premium. Perhaps you remember back in October when uh, our Cuban missionary, Hotniel Perez, uh, visited us and he was describing life in Cuba and I think what struck me the most was when he talked about, like, no matter what profession you're in, maybe, maybe you are a professor at a university. If you wake up in the morning and your wife comes to you and says, we're low on food, we, we're, we're low on beans, we're low on, on bread or whatever, you drop everything. And you spend your time going out to find food and replenish your supplies. Everything else in life takes a back seat to ensuring that you have the next meal. Well, that's kind of like what life was like in the first century. Unless you were rich, unless you were part of the nobility, most of your life was spent cultivating, planning, and securing your next meal. You really didn't have time, much time for, for, for other things. And if you know you lived in a time of scarcity, a time of drought, even when you traveled a little too far from home, like you know when Jesus fed the 5,000, hunger and thirst were very real and very dangerous realities that could take your life. You were never very far from them in the ancient world. Well, this is the, the reality, the imagery that Jesus um, um, is appealing to here. He's, he's talking about genuine hunger. Not just of missing a meal or two. He's talking about a life where the next meal is never really a sure thing. He's talking about genuine thirst. They lived in a desert climate where clean drinking water was not available on every corner. And you had to make sure you properly hydrated or you might die. In other words, what I want you to see here is that this is not a very comforting picture. Jesus isn't talking about a desire for righteousness like choosing which restaurant you're going to eat at tonight or tomorrow night. Rather, it's a striking illustration and it depicts the desire for righteousness as the very heartbeat of daily life and even our very survival. So part of the question that we're confronted with today, we must instinctively ask, what am I hungry and thirsty for? Just as your body longs for food and drink without which it cannot survive, what are the longings of your heart? Just as hunger and thirst are involuntary, they're instinctive cravings of our bodies. What then is the craving of your heart? The longing of your soul. You know, truth be known, you probably don't even really need to answer that question. Because the people who are closest to you can most likely answer it for you. The people who know you the best, they can see what you're pursuing in life. They can see what you're craving. 
They can see what you're hungry for. They can see what your heart longs for. Remember, as we've seen all along, the essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that an unbeliever instinctively lives for this life and everything that they can get out of it, while the Christian decidedly lives for the world to come. And that's the same thing we see here as well. While the world hungers and thirsts after pleasure and comfort and popularity and possessions and success and temporal happiness and temporal satisfaction... Jesus pronounces a blessing upon those who long for and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness above everything else. That's the life of the Christian. That's the heart of the Christian. And the paradox of the kingdom is that those who hunger and thirst live, those who live in a state of spiritual want, that means a spiritual lack, those are the ones that are actually blessed. Because it's through this craving that is given to us by God in the Spirit that God meets that and satisfies that need. That is the pathway to true and lasting joy and happiness and satisfaction in this life. So today we need to answer the question, what exactly does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? And how are they blessed? And as we think about this, we might define righteousness in, you know, it's a broad term, we could define it um, um, in a number of different respects. Are we talking about the righteousness by which we are saved? Are we talking about hungering and thirsting after personal righteousness, doing good works? Are we talking about hungering and thirsting after social or communal or civic righteousness? Well, I'm going to argue a bit of all three, actually. I think it's a combination of all of them, and that there's a danger if we emphasize one over the other. And so this is going to be our three points today. The righteousness Jesus says we are to long for, it's kind of a shorthand for every spiritual blessing. Reconciliation with God renewing of the image of God, and the rule of the righteousness of God. These are three points today. The hunger and thirst after righteousness entails reconciliation with God, renewing of the image of God, and the rule of the righteousness of God. So let's work through these one by one. First, considering the blessing that Jesus gives upon those who hunger and thirst after reconciliation with God. Of course, when I talk about reconciliation with God, I talk about how we are redeemed and saved and forgiven and converted and counted righteous before God. All of this comes through the perfect and complete righteousness that God gives to us as a gift in Jesus Christ received by faith alone. As we would see if we read through the Sermon on the Mount, um, There's no shortage of Jesus' teaching about righteousness throughout the next few chapters. It's noteworthy, though, that a few verses down, down in verse 20, Jesus will follow this up, talk about how unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. How do we define the righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst after? Well, first of all, 
we are to see here that we need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. And this would have been a shock, uh, an understatement. It would have been a really big shock uh, to, the, to the original audience and their understanding of righteousness and salvation. Nobody pursued, hungered, and thirst after righteousness with as much vigor and ded- dedication than the scribes and Pharisees. If anybody hungered and thirsted after righteousness, it was them. No question about it. But Jesus says, no, you need something greater than this. A greater righteousness if you're to be saved. Why did he say this? How could he say this when they hungered and thirsted after righteousness more than anybody else in that day? Well, because of Romans 9.31. The Jews certainly pursued righteousness, but not the righteousness of faith. Rather, they sought to establish their own righteousness. And thus, Paul says, they did not submit to the righteousness of God that is obtained by faith. Paul sums that up in Romans 10.4, For Christ Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So hungering and thirsting after righteousness not, must not be understood as seeking to establish your own righteousness. If so, you've missed the point and you've missed the blessing. We know, of course, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul learned as he uh, recounts his conversion um, in Philippians chapter 3. He says, after listing all of his accomplishments... Right, All of his religious pedigree, all of his hungering and thirsting to be found blameless according to the law, he counted all of those things as rubbish so that I might gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. This follows the logical order of the Beatitudes and how they are steps. When one realizes that they are poor in spirit, they mourn their condition because they know that they cannot work, they cannot obtain a righteousness of their own. They know they are helpless apart from the grace of God. And and that causes them to be meek and to, to approach God as a beggar. And they hear the Scripture say that there is none righteous, no, not one. And they hear the Scripture say that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And they become low because of their sinfulness and their inability to, to obtain a righteousness that commends them to God. But they don't wallow there. They don't stay there. They begin to long. They begin to hunger and thirst for something outside of them to come and save them. That's when they start looking for the righteousness of another. I mean, isn't it obvious that a man who is full is not hungry? Self-righteousness, you don't need another righteousness. Strength, self-sufficiency, there's no hunger and thirst there. Maybe you're filled with the sweet morsels of the world. So you won't come to the table. Your appetite has been ruined. It's been spoiled. But a man who is poor in spirit, a man who is mournful and meek, 
hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Because he knows he doesn't have the resources to fix this on his own. He longs for a right relationship with God. He looks outside of himself for deliverance. He looks out and says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the answer comes, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because when they look outside of themselves, they behold Jesus Christ by faith. They are granted a righteousness of of God that is a gift and that perfect righteousness clothes and commends them to God. That's the first step of what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Brethren, I hope you understand that there's nothing more important than this. Nothing more important in your life than this. You do know that salvation and eternal life comes not when you become righteous. It's not even when God makes you righteous. Christianity centers around the doctrine of substitution. You need Christ in your place. You need the perfect righteousness of God Himself given to you, credited to you, uh, imputed to you, counted to you. And this is what God gives in Christ. And it's received by faith alone. Because if you trust in your own righteousness, it will be filthy rags before God. Even if you say, God, make me righteous, and on that basis I will be saved, you've abandoned the Gospel. You need Christ's righteousness performed for you in your place, given to you. And that is what reconciles you with God. So the hungering and thirsting after this is is just as we hunger and thirst for food because our lives depend upon it, the, the hunger and thirst for our souls, for our very survival, is a hungry and thirsting after the righteousness that will reconcile us for God to, to God. And that's what it means to live in the state of blessedness. Anything that drives us outside of ourselves to look to and cling to Jesus Christ is the blessed life. So that's the first question that's posed upon us today. Do you have this perfect righteousness? Do you realize that you don't have the resources in and of yourselves? Be reconciled to God. Because for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might be become the righteousness of God. And yet, of course, this can't be all that Jesus intends here. Because we know that by faith we have been justified. That's a completed act. It's not a process. It's past tense. If you are a believer, you have right now, you enjoy right now, the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed on your behalf. And nothing can be added to that. But the language that Jesus uses also entails a continual hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And a full satisfaction that still awaits the last day. An already but yet not yet aspect. And so secondly, after pronouncing a blessing upon those who seek reconciliation with God... Jesus now bestows a blessing upon those who hunger and thirst to be renewed after the image of God. 
What I'm talking about here, renewed, of course, is the idea of sanctification. Justification is how we are made right with God. We are saved. It's a one-time completed act where the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And that commends us to God forever and ever. But sanctification is a process, not an act. It's ongoing. It's never completed in this life. And it's where we become more and more like Jesus. More and more righteous. And I do believe that Jesus is speaking about both here. You need to first be reconciled with God by a perfect righteousness. But that starts the process then where you are renewed by God towards a personal and practical righteousness. And there's a danger if we overemphasize one or the other. It's the antinomian who says, well, I have a perfect righteousness. I have thus no need to pursue a practical righteousness. And so the idea of hungering and thirsting really doesn't make much sense here. On the other hand, the legalist makes the opposite error. They hold that, well, we must have a personal and practical righteousness so they don't seek the perfect righteousness that comes by faith imputed to us on the basis of Christ. They neuter Christ's words here as well. In contrast to both, here we have the cry of the new believer. The first motion of the soul when born again is to cling to the imputed righteousness of Christ, but then to long to be conformed to that image. To live a life of grateful obedience to God for all of His mercy. One of the signs of impending death is the lack of an appetite. You could press it even, that analogy even further. Dead men don't hunger and thirst. It's only from a position of life and health that an appetite is cultivated. So the imputation of righteousness grants that spiritual life. It's God raising from the dead a, 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 an enslaved and dead sinner. But what always follows, of course, is the good works that He ordained for us to walk in and that desire to be conformed into His image. Brethren, this really does distinguish the believer from the hypocrite. A hypocrite does not truly hunger and thirst after righteousness. They just want to escape hell and punishment. Give me the ticket to heaven and I will go my way. A hypocrite wants heaven, but he wants his lust as well. He thinks he can take both with him. A hypocrite, like a Pharisee, is one who has a desire for an external righteousness to be seen by others. To be loved and praised by others. Not a righteousness that will glorify God. Not a righteousness that's of the heart within. They just want to be well thought of others. They want to be praised by others. They want to look down upon others. A hypocrite is one who wants the crown of righteousness without the cross of righteousness. But those upon whom Christ bestows a blessing, they are aware of their ungodly desires and they long for them to be mortified. They see their unrighteousness and they hunger to get rid of such things. They see their lusts and their inclinations and their covetousness and they plead and, and, and they, they beg God 
for pure desires, for purity within. You desire purity within. They see the power of sin within their hearts and they long for that power to be weakened and put to death and they are never content. They are never satisfied until they reflect the image of the invisible God, the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfection of righteousness and holiness. And that desire lasts as long as life itself That a hunger and thirst after righteousness is the hunger and thirst to be renewed after the image of God in Christ. And you know, it's interesting as we think about the common thread between the imputation of righteousness and then the, the sanctification of practical righteousness. The common thread between them both is that they both come from God. And they both glorify God. The Baptist Catechism says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Sanctification is not your work. Sanctification is God's work in you. God, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, does the work of your sanctification and thus God gets the glory for your sanctification. And so, don't be deceived by thinking, well, I desire to repent of sin. I desire to live obediently so I must hunger and thirst after righteousness because if you're pursuing this in your own power and strength, you're not really hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You're trying to feed yourself. You're looking to yourself. You're relying upon yourself. You're seeking the glory for yourself. But those who look to God in Christ, those who hope in God in Christ, uh, through Christ, those who, who plead and rest in Christ and, and, and long for the Holy Spirit's work to renew the inner man, they hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God and the glory of His name. And this is the blessed life. They know there's no such thing as a happy life and a sinful life. Those things cannot go together. It's the hungering life that is the blessed life. And just as we look to Christ for His imputed righteousness, we look to God in Christ for that practical righteousness as well so that He gets the glory and the praise. And we walk and we live a life fixated upon Him. And not ourselves. So this is the other question that we're confronted with today. Do we long to walk as Jesus walked? Do we long for the image of God to be renewed in us? Do we look to Christ and to Christ alone? And where He's promised to be found in the, in the means of grace to do this work in us? Or have we made peace with our sins and our lusts? Or do we live as though we can handle this all on our own? The blessed life is a life that daily longs to reflect His image. But again, this can't be all. This can't be everything that Jesus intends here. Because it would be self-righteous and it would be hypocritical if all we desired was our own righteousness. If all our focus was on our life and our sanctification and our blessedness rather than longing for the expanse and success and flourishing of righteousness all around us. So thirdly, 
Jesus pronounces a blessing upon those who hunger and thirst for the rule of righteousness. They hunger and thirst for the rule of righteousness as well. The godly heart is the heart that grieves at the sinfulness and wickedness of this world. The godly heart is a heart that yearns and longs for thy kingdom to come and thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. One aspect of this, undoubtedly, is a hungering and thirsting after justice when mistreated. Right? We consider last time meekness often opens us up to being trampled on and used on by the world. And we might cry out, where is the justice? And part of what Jesus is saying here is like, look, at the last day, you hunger and thirst for justice, it will be satisfied. God will right every wrong. So it's a blessing upon those who patiently and contently bear with mistreatment and persecution, quietly resting in God to plead their cause in due time. But another aspect of this that is related is what we might call civic righteousness, or social righteousness, social justice. Of course, i got to be really careful here, because social justice is such a loaded term in our day. I don't want you to misunderstand the point here. Uh, Undoubtedly, often in our day, uh, social justice, it's riddled with what we might call Marxist categories and presuppositions. Uh, It's a class issue. Racial and economic justice, um, justice for minorities and the oppressed classes and things of that nature. And I don't want to give credence to those things. Even in Christian circles, of course, social justice is often used to refer to things like feeding the poor or renewing and redeeming broken neighborhoods and social structures. And let me just tell you, there's no shortage of sermons from, from liberals on this passage right here. They turn this into a commandment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for social justice. We're called to pursue these things. It's often argued. But I saved this for the last point here because there is an important order and priority here. And we need to grasp this if we're going to understand what I mean, what, what the text means, what the Scriptures mean when it talks about civic or social justice. This aspect of righteousness is entirely dependent upon the two we already discussed. We need to know Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing upon any of those who desire justice and righteousness just in general. I mean, we've already considered, haven't we? If you hunger and thirst towards obtaining your own righteousness, if you hunger and thirst... um, uh, in respect where you rely upon your own strengths and abilities for your own glory, this is a self-righteousness. It's a self-serving righteousness. It's a man-glorifying righteousness. And that is not the ble- that does not receive the blessing of God. Well, we need to say the very same thing when we come to social or civic righteousness as well. Outward or social righteousness that does not stem from faith to the glory of God is no righteousness at all. So yes, do we long for and pray for and yearn for civic and social and communal righteousness and justice? Absolutely. But where does it start and what does it look like? 
It must start with the imputed righteousness of Christ received by faith. And it must from there proceed to progressively transform an individual so that they walk in righteous ways. And then it's through their love, our love, and our influence on society that brings about righteousness in the community at large. We do desire social transformation. But we don't just desire for sin to be curbed, hunger to be cured, racial reconciliation to be accomplished, justice to be prevalent. Much less do we desire our preferred political party to be in power, or our preferred legislation to be made law, or our solutions to society's ills uh, implemented. No, our hunger and thirst after righteousness is that sinners might be converted, that Christians might be sanctified, and the nations might be reached with the gospel. That's where social transformation starts. That's where the redeeming of communities starts. That's where thy will be done on earth as it in heaven starts. It starts not with good works, not with social action, not with just a blanket superficial earthly righteousness. It starts with personal conversion. And disciples who were then taught to observe everything that Christ commanded and their effect upon the world is what curbs social sin and promotes civic righteousness. And so to hunger and thirst after righteousness entails crying to the Lord day and night, Lord, save sinners. Lord, curb wickedness. Cast down idols. Sanctify Your people to do Your work. Cause Your name to be known and Your will to be done. And the challenge then that this poses to us is as Luther so aptly put it in his commentary on this verse. Our duty is not to back into a corner or go and hide in the wilderness as much as we might be tempted to in Pride Month, but to come out into the world briskly, zealously, and to offer our hands and feet and bodies to do everything we can to maintain what is right. You can't hunger and thirst after righteousness if you never go out into the world and are amongst and, and spend time among sinners. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to do everything in our power to spread and embody and promote the knowledge of God and His will in all things in every area of life. And that is the blessed life. So it starts with reconciliation. It starts with the renewing of the image. And it seeks to see the expanse of His rule. That's what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, brethren, as we make our way now towards a conclusion, I want to make some application here. I want to bring it home a little bit. I want us to consider what it means to be satisfied and the promise that God gives. And as we think about it, that we need to be clear first and foremost, how do we apply this passage? We need to remember first and foremost that Christ is giving a promise and a blessing here. He's not giving us a law and a commandment. He's saying, you will be satisfied. That's gospel. I will do this for you. 
you will be filled. And that is the motivation for us to seek the righteousness of God in all of these things. So maybe you're here today and you haven't abandoned yourself to the righteousness of God in Christ, evidenced by placing faith in Him and coming to the waters of baptism. Maybe you're here today and you're sitting here thinking, I really don't hunger and thirst after practical righteousness. Sanctification is really an afterthought to me. Maybe you're thinking, I often just hunger and thirst after the world. I'm often satisfied with worldly junk food that ruins my appetite for righteousness. You're here today thinking my sanctification is not what it should be. And the worst part about it is I don't care nearly enough as I should. Maybe you're here thinking, well, my hunger and thirst after righteousness is so often self-serving because I could care less if the world goes to hell in a handbasket. What's the remedy? What what is the cure? What, What should you do? Receive the promise and the blessing that Christ offers here. It's the promise and the blessing that is to move us to hunger and thirst after Him. The motivation is not guilt, but gratitude. Here, that that God in Christ gives you a perfect and eternal righteousness apart from anything that you do. Here, that God in Christ promises to sanctify you. To do that work within your heart that you cannot do. And that He will finish the work that He started in you. Here and promise to God... Uh, Hear the promise that God has said, I will make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness rules and reigns from shore to shore. It's the awe and the wonder of these things. It's the faith that He gives that God will do this and more that, that will increase your spiritual appetite after the righteousness of God. It's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier that you are. When we have but a small taste of the waters of life, we want more and more and more. Which is why the Scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the Scriptures say, God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. It's why the Scriptures say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me will not hunger. Who believes in Me shall not thirst. It's why the Scriptures say, the water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's why the Scriptures say, come everyone who thirsts, uh, come to the waters. You got no money? Well, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. All you need is to feel your need of Him. Everything in the world is fading, but everything in God is filling. And God has made our hearts so that nothing can fill our hearts but God Himself. And so we are to labor to get a clearer and more captivating glimpse of the grace and righteousness that God gives to us in Christ and in the Gospel. And it's when we long and labor for that look, that glimpse of Christ, that is the blessed life. Even if we don't have a righteousness that we desire because we still struggle with sin. Even if we don't see the expanse of righteousness around us and we're tempted to think that there is no hope 
Just the hungering and thirsting after God in Christ Himself is the blessed life. And it's evidence that God has put that desire in your heart and He will finish what He started. So brethren, here this morning, the promise to satisfy. The promise to satisfy. He feeds you with His Word. He nourishes you through the means of grace. Worship, prayer, preaching, the Lord's Supper. It's not what the world would consider valuable or filling or satisfying. But to the eye of faith, to the eye and the heart of faith, these things are infinitely satisfying. And they are but morsels that remind us a small foretaste of the full satisfaction to come the age to come. And we know just as our children, when they beg us for food, we would never turn them back when we come to the Lord and ask our Heavenly Father to feed and nourish us. He will answer. He has promised to do so. What a comfort that is. What a comfort when we are tempted and and when we fall into sin and and we are beset by by doubts and and weak faith. What a comfort it is to know that it's not the presence of the righteousness, but the longing for it. The longing for it that is blessed and the longing for it that will be answered and met by our God. This is the promise, the grace that God in Christ extends to you today. Let us, brethren, receive it with a full assurance of faith. Amen. Let's pray.